you turn in your copy of the scriptures to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Just had a couple of announcements to make. One is that uh, we've changed the Old Town evangelism to Friday nights. Now we're going to try to be there on the first Friday of the month and the final Friday of the month. Final Friday because oftentimes they have a lot of events going on down there and it gives us a lot more opportunity to uh, be around more people. So first Friday of the month and the final Friday of the month for Old Town Evangelism begins at 8.30. And we've been doing something additional to that at 7.30. If it doesn't, it's not really connected, but uh, if you'd like to join us at 7.30 down near the library uh, downtown at Mocha's Cafe, we take an hour there and people just come together who have been working on scripture memory and try to uh, just review scripture with each other. And one will share a few verses, another might share a chapter. Whatever your area that you're in, it's just a way to try to sharpen the sword. <laughs> can't say it. Sharpen the sword that God has given to us in His Spirit. So come down and join us, whether you know one verse or a million. Uh, we want to be able to encourage each other in the Word. So 730s, first and final Fridays, and then 830, Old Town Evangelism. And the other thing was, uh, the women's study actually will, will be on the first Monday of the month. That'll be not this Monday, but the following. So it's the first and third Monday of the month. It's great to be back with so many of you again this week. Uh, last week was a different group here. There were, a lot of people were out of town. And I uh, just missed a lot of you, and it's good to see you all back. It was a great event down there in Texas. Great time of praise and worship of Christ in that wedding. So many people served, as Phil said. It was a real encouragement. Um, in the scriptures throughout, God uses a lot of different metaphors and analogies to help us understand who his people are and what they are like. If I was to ask you, and I will do that, what are some metaphors that God uses for the church, for his people? Sheep. sheep. Okay, very good. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are the flock of God. What's another? Body. The body. Very good. The body of Christ. Bride. The bride. Excellent. Good. We focused on that last Sunday. That was Christina's desire, that we would be looking at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the bride of Christ being reunited. I'm sorry, one over. Followers? Followers? Okay. Thank you. Good. Building. A building? Yeah. It's built up together as the a building that God is creating. Let me throw a few more. The branches from John 15. Uh, a holy nation. First Peter chapter 2. A kingdom in Revelation chapter 5. Uh, and a lot of these are more than just analogies. These words of God through his apostle Paul that we're looking at in 1 Timothy chapter 5, they're written to teach and to direct his spiritual son Timothy. And he uses an analogy here, but like some of these other ones, this is actually more than simply an analogy. Paul teaches Timothy and us how to love each other in his church. By considering relationships within family. Family is not simply some kind of word picture to help us see a truth. Family is really who we are. When I say church, I mean all those who have repented and left sin and self as their God. As their master. They've repented and left that. And they have trusted instead in Jesus Christ. 
His life, His death, His resurrection for the eternal salvation. For those in Christ's bride, in His church, have repented and believed on Jesus Christ. So when we talk about the church and the family, that's where we're going. Uh, it says in Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is really, I think, a great summation of what the church is. So, if we are family, how are we family? How, why would God say that we are family? Why would He use that analogy for us? Well, first of all, we all have the same Father. For those in Christ, we all have the same Father. John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. I can hardly say that verse anymore without just being gripped to my soul. And it seems simple. But the fact that we, as enemies of God, have been born again and have been made children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born in some spiritual, amazing way, we have become children and we were born, and not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but we were born of God. He is our Father. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus teaches His disciples to pray, He says, address God as our Father. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the pleasure of His goodwill. We are adopted as sons. He is our Father. Romans 8, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you, do not, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, what? Children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. You sit down and you look at those verses, Romans 8, 14 through 17. And look what is implied that you have received there. Adoption, children of God, heirs. And then think, what does that mean? We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. <clears throat> and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. It hasn't. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. You will be like Him in some way in this glorified body, in this glorified sense, in ways you could not even imagine now. That will be your existence primarily. This is such a brief and fleeting time as Tom recollects with his mother. 
Uh, I'm sure, like he and, and Brad mentioned too, uh, it was like that when we were running around at their feet. And then we lay them to rest and they're gone. And I mentioned to Tom, that'll be us next week. Not literally, but soon. But we have this great privilege of being children of God, sons of God. And we have this privilege to represent Him, to be His people as children of God for a very short time until He takes us home. I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 3. And here Jesus makes a statement that is controversial. It would have been in those days, people would have wondered, why is he saying this? Jesus demonstrates in Mark 3, 31 through 35, that those who love him are more family than our actual flesh and blood parents and siblings. Mark 31, or 4, excuse me. Mark 3.31 Then his brothers and his mother came and standing outside they sent to him calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. That would have been scandalous in those days. But it was truth. Jesus is bringing a new kingdom, but he's bringing us a new family. Secondly, God is not only our father, but as his children, we are brothers and sisters. We as God's children are continuously referred to in scripture as brothers and sisters. One commentator reported that There are more than 100 references to brothers and sisters in the writings of Paul. Here are a few from Paul, Peter, John, and the writer of Hebrews. 1 Peter 2, honor all people, love the brotherhood. Romans 12.10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. And through the Apostle John, God places an extremely high requirement for loving as brothers. It has eternal consequences, this command to love as brothers. 1 John 2, 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause of stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So consequently, if we are family, what difference does that make? That's where we go today in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Please join with me in prayer as we begin to dig in here. Father, we thank you. Lord God, we thank you that we can call you Father. We don't have to... Just refer to you as some supreme being who is cold to us. But you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have given your son in our stead. While we were sinners, while we were your enemies, while we were wretched, and you loved us so immensely. Lord, please lead us as we open these scriptures and 
seek to understand your will for us within the body of Christ, within the family of God. Lord, help us to take these things that you have written through your Apostle Paul and live them, be fully committed to them, and even understand them, Lord. Please, please move today by your Holy Spirit through your word. To your name's glory. In your name we pray. Amen. How to respond in the family of God. Verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. There is evidence, as we've been going through 1 Timothy, that there is sin in the house of God in Ephesus. Paul knew this. He had been there. He had actually removed Hymenaeus and Alexander from roles of leadership because of sin in that church. Paul is no longer there. He is addressing this to his spiritual son Timothy who is trying to fight for the church essentially. Paul knew Timothy. Timothy is aware that 1 Timothy 1.6 Some have, having strayed have turned aside to idle talk. Verse 19, chapter 1. Having faith and good conscience, which some have rejected. Concerning the faith, they have suffered shipwreck. Chapter 2, verse 9. That the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly clothing. When you hear Paul say, don't do this, it's not because he's saying, Well, there's nobody here doing this, and that's not a problem, but I just want to get it out there. No, he is addressing an issue. We go on in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Times will, sometimes, times will come when some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created. To be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Chapter 5 verse 6. And we'll look at this in a moment. She who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own. Some evidently were not. Chapter 5 verses 11 through 12. But refuse the younger women, widows for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ. They desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Chapter 5, verse 15. Some have already turned aside to Satan. Verse 19 through 20. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. In chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. So that is just a panorama of sins. Men, women, old, young, leaders, common people in the, in the congregation. There have been many difficulties. So there is evidence that there is sin, but there are commands to respond to those sins. So we don't sit there when that sin is existent. Timothy not only knew there were problems and people that needed correction, but he knew according to the Old Testament scriptures that he must respond. Proverbs 6.23 For the commandment is a lamp 
and the law light. Reproofs of instruction. Reproofs are the way of life. Proverbs 19.25 Strike a scoffer and the simple will become wary. Rebuke one who has understanding and he will discern knowledge. Proverbs 9, 8 and 9. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Proverbs 28, 23. He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. In his subsequent letter to Timothy, Paul commands, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And then to Titus he will write, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. There is a need in that church for rebuking and correction. And there is a command to respond to that. There is sin, there is a command, and now we are given a manner in which we are to respond. There is a manner in which we are to respond. Older men. The context shows that the word elder used here is not for those in the office of elder in the church. But it is speaking of those men who are actually older in age than Timothy. Calvin writes, He now recommends to Timothy gentleness, and moderation in correcting faults. Correction is a medicine which has always some bitterness and consequently is disagreeable. Besides Timothy being a young man, his severity would have been less tolerable if it had been somewhat moderated. Yet it ought to be observed that he does not wish old men to be spared or indulged in such a manner as to sin with impunity than without correction. He only wishes that some respect should be paid to their age that they may, be, may more patiently bear to be admonished. There is a need, even for older men, that they be corrected at times too. Men such as myself. There are two contrasting responses given here, aren't there? Two contrasting responses to sin for an older brother. Rebuke versus exhort. Now rebuke, if you look in your scriptures, some of you have a translation that says harshly rebuke. And that is appropriate. It is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Strong's gives the meaning as to chastise, to upbraid. This is a violent and an aggressive response to someone. Such an approach would obviously stir up animosity or anger. We know Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer, a soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Now exhort on the other hand can also be translated as encourage, build up, appeal to, to entreat. Exhort is a compound word. It's parakleo, which means to call alongside. If you're familiar with uh, some of the Greek in the New Testament, it's very similar to the word parakleatos or parakletos. And that's the title that Jesus gives to the Holy Spirit in John 15. There it is translated... Comforter, advocate, and intercessor. So we see here that the Holy Spirit is our guide and our example in how a younger man is to correct an older man in the family of God. But a very important key is, is brought in here. 
very important key in correcting an older man. It said if you do it, you do it as if you were in the same family. As if that man is your father. As if he is your dad. Now, think about that. It's a modifier. It tells us how to do something. How would that man, being your father, affect your approach to him? How would you come to your own dad over the same issue? That is something to keep in mind when you're moved to provide some sort of correction or exhortation. Most of us would come with respect, wouldn't we? We'd come with honor. I think of the word agapao, that that actual love that wants the best for the one being loved. It's putting itself aside. You want that kind of love now that you're trying to attempt to correct. Proverbs 4 verse 1 says, Hear my children the instruction of a father and give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. There's that tender relationship of the father who has taught the son. And now, if you place yourself in that position that the one you're to correct is as if he were your father, you want that tenderness as you approach. My father is 93 years of age. We have had an almost completely new relationship during the last four years since my mother passed away. And that's, I mean that in a very positive sense. We have learned to talk. He has been so humble and so broken and transparent. And any time I have tried to speak with my father on serious issues, some of them spiritual, some more domestic or things that we've had to take care of, I have treated him with, with much care and patience. And that's not to brag upon me. That's just as I face him and I look at him and see what he has done. I want to approach him with love. I do not want to break our relationship in any way or show any contempt. I want him to understand what I truly think is actually best for him. Younger men. We're to treat younger men as brothers. Not domineering, but treating them essentially as peers, as equals. First Peter Chapter 5 says, we do not as yet as lording it over those allotted to our charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. We don't lord it over. We don't domineer. Matthew eighteen fifteen. if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. That's the first approach. We see more there. And if he refuses, there are other steps to be taken. But that's the initial step. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, this is dynamite for correction. Paul gives instruction here that is aimed at correction. It's aimed at correction, but it is saturated with humility. Listen to this. Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Brethren, if any, even if anyone is caught in a sin or a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So we go with great humility to, to brothers that need to be corrected. Treat a younger brother in Christ with humility and respect, yet directly. 
And I, I want to share with you, this is not a, an illustration of correction, but last Saturday, about 30 minutes before the wedding, I had the great privilege of standing with six young men from this assembly as they've laid hands on Peter and prayed for him. And I was just, that was the highlight of my weekend as I heard these men pray for this brother with such maturity in the Lord and hearing their heart for him and a desire for God to be glorified through his life and God to be glorified through their lives. It was amazing. And, and I joined in prayer with full humility. These guys are my brothers. And they have grown so much. And they have a heart and a zeal for what is right. So we treat each other with humility. We treat each other with respect. But sometimes we must go with that attitude. And bring someone back to the way of Christ. To the way scripture would have us. Third, older women. An older woman is to be treated as if she were your own mother. What a poignant time, the timing of this with what we've heard this morning already. Proverbs 1 verse 8 says, My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. Proverbs 6.20 My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake the law of your mother. Proverbs 23.22 Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Paul got it. Paul expressed this love toward an older woman as if she were his own mother when he wrote in Romans chapter 16, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. It wasn't literally his mother, but essentially he had such affection towards her with that kind of love. In the church at Philippi, a controversy had erupted between two women in the assembly. While their ages are not given, they were women who had faithfully served in gospel ministry right alongside Paul. They were soldiers in the battlefield for the gospel with Paul. Now listen to how Paul pleads with them. And he employs the help of the church in trying to get these women free from whatever has split their relationship. Whatever it is has divided them. We don't know what it is, but we know they're divided. Now here's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You get the sense that he's not questioning their salvation but there has come a division and it shouldn't be there. And he is begging them to lay down the weapons and come back together in unity. And he's asking the church to come alongside them as well. But these very likely were older women and they should be treated with, with great love and tenderness and compassion. And that may be, brothers and sisters, when they don't deserve that or don't respond in kind. All of these categories. The fourth one, younger women. This group of individuals in the church receives special attention. 
Correct them as your own sister with all purity. This is the same word purity that described Timothy's example to the believers in the previous chapter. It very specifically is a call to sexual purity in relationships. Timothy and other men in their assembly are to maintain the highest level of moral and ethical behavior with young women. George Knight wrote, Paul, with perceptive realism, gives a special word of caution for the situation where a pastor is called to not called to deal personally and privately with younger women. Is called to deal personally and privately with younger women. It is absolutely crucial that such an individual guards against any development or even suggestion of improper interest or improper intimacy. MacArthur said, Nothing so easily makes or breaks a young pastor as his conduct with women. In fact, if we consider the treatment of young women to be in the same way we treat our sister, any violation of that would amount to spiritual incest in the family of our God. And I probably don't need to raise this issue much, but we know that this area of sin and abuse by spiritual leaders has brought much shame and destruction on individuals in the name of Christ throughout our country. That's why he adds a special caution with all purity. Brothers and sisters, guard that. And I say brothers and sisters. Brothers, be on guard. Be faithful. Be careful. Don't, don't allow for even the suggestion of something that, that could cause that kind of a affection to grow in a relationship. It will only be destructive. Then Paul moves and speaks specifically about a very special need in the Ephesians church. And it's not only in the Ephesians church, but as you see it here, it seems to be one that really is important and has really taken the heart of Paul that he must address. He says in verse 3, Honor widows who are really widows. How to care for widows in the family of God. I have here for A, honor but verify. And a few years back, many years back, seems like a few for old guys. But uh, our president at that time, Ronald Reagan, spoke about the Russians and the relationship there and spoke about trust but verify. And that's not exactly appropriate here because we don't see widows as our enemies or animosity or a threat. But the idea is Paul is saying, honor them but verify these specific things. That's what he's speaking about here. Why? Why do we honor widows? Because God does. God honors widows. Psalm 68, verses 4 through 5. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Extol Him who rides on the clouds. By His name, Yah. And rejoice before Him. A father of the fatherless. A defender of widows. A defender of widows. Is God in His holy habitation. So much could have been said about God in that phrase. But the highlight moves to a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows. They are important to God. Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan 
If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Deuteronomy 27.19 Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, and widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. According to the Old Testament, the ideal step for a widow was to remarry. In some cases that was not possible. So then widows were to abide in their father's home. Or as we see in the book of Ruth, when her husband Malan died, she began to live with her mother-in-law Naomi. Also related to that book in the Bible, the Levirate Law assigned a widow's unmarried brother-in-law to marry her. We don't do that these days, but that was common. The unmarried brother-in-law would marry the woman who had been widowed. If the brother-in-law were already married, the responsibility was passed on to the nearest kin. That is precisely how Boaz was positioned to marry Ruth. Now, I, I doubt that any of you are, but if some of you are wondering, well, who in the world are Ruth and Boaz, and what does that have to do with this, please, I urge you to read the beautiful Bible book of Ruth. And by the way, she is a foreigner, a widow, and a Gentile who is used by God as part of the genealogy leading to the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the most amazing book, and I guess it's kind of like an advertisement plug. Read that. It's, it's amazing, the story. At the time of Paul's letter to Timothy, Jewish widows were often very, very poor, sometimes in abject poverty. With their husbands gone and virtually no employment options outside their home, their plight was very, very difficult. One commentator wrote, It fell upon the local synagogues to relieve the plight of widows. Customarily, a group from each synagogue would make the rounds on Friday mornings, collecting goods and money to be distributed to the needy widows later in the afternoon. In spite of those efforts, however, many widows were still impoverished. One of the first ministries of the church in Acts was initiated for the care of widows. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so they responded to that need and they took care of those widows. You know, one of the things that I read a few weeks ago when it was describing this statement, uh, how did he say that? Old wives' tales or, or old wives' old widows' fables the reason that that was used and not men's fables or widowers' fables is because there weren't very many older men, older widows at that time. But at the same time, there were many older women that were left without anyone to care for them. Uh, the actual word for widow used in verse 3 includes, but it's not limited to a woman whose husband has died. That word specifically means one who is left alone or has suffered loss. Her husband may have abandoned her. He may have been killed. He may have even been imprisoned. But here Paul is not merely writing about women who have no husband. He goes further. They are those with no husband and literally nothing else. 
Calvin concludes, when he calls them really widows, he alludes to a Greek word which is derived from a verb which signifies to be deprived or destitute. Paul is calling the Ephesian church to honor, to care for those women who are without a husband and any personal resources at all. But, but if any woman, or but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Home is a priority. Home is a priority here. Widows have, who have children or grandchildren are not considered in the category of widows who the church is required to care for. In verse 4, Paul rightly says, The responsibility and the opportunity to care for your mother or grandmother who is widowed belongs to you. The priority here in verse 4 is that families show true godliness to their own. Our trans, one translation says the offspring are to put their religion into practice by caring for their own household. If you do this, it's interesting, if you do this, these verses say that you are repaying your parents. What are you repaying them for? Well, as you become a parent and grandparent, you know that very well. You are repaying them for the years, the dollars, the hard labor and the tears they gave to your life as they raised you to adulthood. Now there's not a single perfect parent in here. And none of you have had a perfect parent. And many of us, there's a lot of uh, do-overs we wish we could do. But, but we have so much to be grateful for. I, I, countless ways. And I know many of you have the same thing. Because of medical experiences though, dementia, Personality changes, physical injuries, weaknesses. Caring for a widowed mother or grandmother may prove to be costly in time, money, and emotional energy. But, such care for your widowed parent is not only a fair repayment, it is even more rewardingly something that God says is good and acceptable in His sight. As you will see in the final few verses this morning, Caring for our widowed parents and grandparents is something that the Lord holds of the highest value. You will find few things in Scripture that bear greater significance in just a few short verses than our care for our widowed parents that is extolled by Paul here. In just a few concise statements, he brings this to bear very heavily at least three times. Verse 5 says, Now she who is really a widow... She who really is a widow and left alone, trusts in God, continues in supplication and prayers night and day. Holiness is practiced by this widow. Holiness is practiced. There's three qualifications given. First of all, that she really is a widow. Paul reemphasizes specifically who he's calling the church to care for. The widows who are absolutely alone with no family to help them and are truly desolate in need. Secondly, she is a widow who trusts in God. A widow who is to be cared for by church is demonstrably a godly woman. Her hope is fixed on God. She trusts in Him. And trust here is in the present tense. It means that she is continually walking with God and dependent upon Him. 
Jeremiah 49 verse 11 says, And let your widows trust in me. Matthew Henry wrote, God sometimes brings his people into such straits that they have nothing else to trust to. That they may with more confidence trust in him. Widowhood is a desolate estate. But let the widow trust in me and rejoice that they have a God to trust to. While we have, or while we as God's hands and feet in the world, we may choose to help unbelieving widows. That is good. That brings glory to Christ. But the church is specifically required by the word of God to help its own believing widows who are truly widows in need. So I'm not trying to diminish the importance of reading out, reaching out and encouraging widows. And we have beautiful widows in our assembly. They are such an encouragement to so many of us. Their faithfulness, their, their cheerfulness, their gratefulness. But what Paul is calling for here is a unique situation that, that we don't see as much. And today we, have, we even have welfare. We have all sorts of other things. But if we have this opportunity, we must take advantage of it. And what we do have in the way of widows, we should be fully committed to them. To love and encourage them. Because they are family. And we are family with them. And then it says that she demonstrates her godliness through regular, constant supplication and prayer. This is a call to the widow. Supplication. It can be an entreaty. or It can be about any kind of request made in prayer. It could be for personal needs or the needs of others or the needs of the church, missionary needs. And prayers here implies that it's more of a praise and a worship. It's commune with God. You're communing with God. This widow whom the church cares for and provides for is a woman who spends much time in prayer. She no longer has the responsibility of family. And because she is cared for by the church, she is not required to earn a living. She is freed to commit her time and energy to a most important ministry. Prayer. Do we get that? Prayer. We will meet Wednesday night for a prayer meeting. That's one, one time out of the month. On that Wednesday night, we gather for corporate prayer. You would be hard-pressed to find in Scripture any ministry that is as important and effective as prayer. I hope you will come and, and join us in that and participate in that. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians... He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And such is the advantage that the widow has, who has no others at this time. Now a beautiful example of this kind of woman is shown in the first week of Jesus' life on earth. Luke chapter 2, look at verse 22. Now when the days of her, that's Mary, Jesus' mother, when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which represents the fact that Joseph and Mary were very poor themselves. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
And then if you read further, it says that he prophesied. He glorified God. And he blessed the baby Messiah and his family. But he was not the only individual at the temple that met Joseph and Mary and Jesus. Verse 36 of Luke 2. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with the husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Exactly what Paul was talking about. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Riken extols the role of the godly widow and says, as a result of their intercession and prayer, young mothers with their toddlers, ministers at their books, missionaries in their fields, men and women on their jobs, all receive spiritual help for their work. If you are a widow, God is calling you to enter into deep fellowship with Him through prayer. However, beware. Verse 6. Because of sin's unceasing cunning, there will inevitably be an impersonator of whom God seeks to bless. In the church in Ephesus, there were also she who lives in pleasure, who is dead while she lives. This widow, widow is the complete opposite of the first widow who lives in poverty, without comfort, in humility. This widow, in verse 6, lives in pleasure, but is really dead while she lives. It's a hidden death. A hidden death. This widow lives in luxury. She looks like she is literally living it up in wanton pleasure, self-indulgence. One translation says, this describes the person who leads a life of pleasure with no thought of what is right or wrong. She that lives in pleasure, writes Matthew Henry, is dead while she lives, is no living member of the church, but as a carcass in it, a mortified member. We may apply it more generally. Those who live in pleasure are dead while they live spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins. They are in the world to no purpose, buried alive as to the great ends of living. End quote. The glorious inverse of this state of being dead that Paul speaks about with this woman is described by Paul also in Ephesians chapter 2. And we cannot miss this statement in here and the significance of it because it is, as Matthew Henry said, much broader even than just the situation for the widow. This glorious inverse in Ephesians 2 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Sadly, such a self-indulgent woman 
is not living in danger of death. Don't get that wrong. She's not living in danger of dying. She is dead. As John 3.18 says, of all men who have not trusted in Christ, they are condemned already. That's why we need a Savior, a Rescuer. We have no help to be able to do it on our own. This self-indulgent woman is representative of us all who have not repented and trusted in Christ. To simply sign up, as many evidently were as a widow, to receive the benefits did not bring her out of death. To simply sign up as a church member or to wear a cross around your neck or to have faithful attendance does not bring you out of death to life. You must repent from sin and follow Christ. Believe in Him for the day of salvation is now. Or you will be just like that woman, that self-indulgent woman who lived for herself and thought she was living only to discover a judgment that she has been dead all along. Don't let that be you. Then we come to verse 7. And we get here the responsibility in the family of God. The responsibility in the family of God. There's a requirement to command. It says, and these things command that they may be blameless. These things. It's likely meaning what Paul has just been writing to Timothy in these last four verses. Timothy is commanded to command. Timothy is commanded to command the Ephesian church. This demonstration of love within the church is of the highest priority. And he gives us three reasons. That the believers, first of all, will be blameless. Not rebukable. So that there is no need for them to endure a rebuke or an exhortation. They're living rightly. And then in verse 8, you have a responsibility here to provide. A responsibility to provide. Verse 8, our final verse. But if anyone does not provide for his own... And especially for those of his own household. He has denied the faith. And is worse than a believer. So first of all. We are to do these things so that we can be blameless. Secondly. Paul says. Again stating that if the believers. Don't do what he has just commanded them. They have denied the faith. That means to have contradicted the faith. To disavow it. They have rejected Christ. Now that seems harsh. For an action. But that's what Paul is writing. If you do not take care of those. Who are your responsibility in a family. You have denied the faith. And thirdly. You are worse than an unbeliever. The judgment for failure. And following God's instructions. For responsibility of your family. And widowed parents. Threefold. One. You will be blamed or guilty of sin. Two. You are denying the faith of Christ. And three, your hardness is even worse than an unbeliever. And look what Paul says. Paul does not say, if you don't do these things, you're just as bad as an unbeliever. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, you are worse than an unbeliever. How can that be? Well, one thing, he is, it's obvious he is making a very, very, very important point. But let me give you three reasons in closing here. How can this be? Well, one, the believers have learned of the example of Christ at the cross. There he, even under the greatest of pain and suffering, assured the care of his mother. He looked upon her and passed her on 
to his faithful apostle John. He looked out for his mother even under such duress with the weight of the sin of all who would trust in him upon him. He looked out for his mother. Secondly, the believers have been admonished by Paul's letter and the testimony of Old Testament prophets of their responsibility. He has told them over and over again. It has been made clear. And thirdly, even the pagan culture follows through with care for their parents and family members with greater faithfulness than these believers have been demonstrating. Don't fall into that. This is a very practical, practical portion of Paul's letter. And it calls us to action. It calls us to the right heart attitude within our family of God. So in conclusion, a call to ministry for widows of all ages and situations to commit themselves to much supplication and prayer. You have a job to do. You have a responsibility. You have a great opportunity and we need you to do that. Secondly, families, be faithful to care for your widowed mothers and grandmothers. Don't shirk that. Don't be slack on that. And finally, the church. We are to take responsibility to care for widows in need. We must be there. We must be prepared. We must. I know in a practical example in the Ukraine where Pablo is, they have many, many widows in need. It's the nature of that culture. And it's even amplified now. So perhaps we can even help there in some ways uniquely. But be prepared. Make your hearts right with God's word as to who we are and what we are to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, God, perfect and holy and righteous, just, if, if and whatever I have said that has added to or taken away from your word, please forgive me and remove that. But I pray that your word would speak to all of us about how to glorify you, how to be living in a way that is good and acceptable, pleasing to you. How to show the world the love of Christ to each other. Lord, give us a heart for widows. Give us a heart for the responsibility in our families. Give us a heart to treat each other with love and respect and not fail to exhort when there's the necessity of correction, but to do so in a way that shows the love of Christ. Oh God, you are worthy of all praise and glory and honor forever. You own us. We owe you everything. Or may we live for your glory this week. In your name we pray. Amen.